There was a barber in a small town who was an ordinary guy, good guy, church-going guy, enjoyed his work, enjoyed his friends, enjoyed conversation while he cut hair, but he never really talked about his faith until one day the preacher in his little church really got going about how if you are a disciple, you should be making disciples. If you believe in Jesus, you should be proclaiming the gospel. And he was convicted. And he decided he was going to begin using every opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And yet, even though he had a very easy way and a very good rapport with all of his customers, he, he got nervous. He got worked up. And, and one morning he said, all right, I'm going to talk about Jesus today. And as he cut the first guy's hair, he said, I've got to look for an opening and wait for an opportunity to change the subject to things spiritual. And it never happened. And the guy paid and left. And the barber said, oh, I've got to do it next time. So he began to cut the next guy's hair. And he, and he thought, I'm going I'm to make sure that I, oh, it came and it went. And the guy paid and left. Next guy came in. And, and this guy wanted to shave. And he thought, ah. He won't be talking about other stuff. You can't really talk a lot because, you know, you're... And so he said, all right, I, I have the floor, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And he tried to get himself all psyched up. And he lathered the man's face all up, and, and he took the razor, and as he walked over, he put it right up to the man's neck and said, tell me, are you ready to meet God? <laughs> actions are important. It's been said that actions speak louder than words, but... I think we only say that in the few situations when they actually do. Actions only speak louder than words if your actions and your words contradict each other. What's most important is that our actions and words speak with one voice. And then they both can together speak loudly. And no one's actions and words have ever been more beautifully consistent and working in concert with one another than the Lord Jesus' actions and his words. And we see that in this text very clearly. We've been going through John here, and we've seen several times that Jesus makes reference to his hour. My hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. It is not yet night, this yet day. And here we see in chapter 13, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, this is what we commonly call the Last Supper, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. See, from here on, there's much left of the Gospel of John, but it's all the end, the climax. His hour has come, and he is about to accomplish what he came to do. In verse 2, we're told during supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Or I think the NIV said had, the devil had prompted him to betray Jesus. And yet in Luke, we read it's even deeper than that, that Satan had entered into Judas Iscariot. Satan had entered into him. Now think about this awkward dinner. I know some of us, we go to Thanksgiving, we have family that we're kind of at odds, we have different views. Here we have God in the flesh at this holiday dinner. God himself, God and man. Six feet away, we have Satan in a man. You can cut that tension with a knife, and yet the, the disciples are blissfully unaware of the whole thing. But we know, and we can look at this situation and see what's happening. We can see over here in Judas Iscariot, treachery and selfishness just ruling his heart. And then over here in Christ, we see love and compassion and selflessness and eternal faithfulness. Knowing his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
These are two different paths, obviously, Jesus and the devil, and they go in different directions, but sometimes people can confuse the two. They're sort of counterintuitive. The direction that the devil's path takes him is to take himself and go up, 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 up. We read about this in Isaiah 14. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Satan's heart is pointing up to exalt himself. Jesus' heart points him in the other direction. Philippians 2, starting with verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's love prompts him to lower himself, to humble himself. And yet the real counterintuitive part comes that when he points up, Satan winds up going down. In fact, that passage from Isaiah 14 begins with the words, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Yes, you said, I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds, make myself like the Most High, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. On the other hand, Jesus, as he lowers himself, humbles himself, after those words, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These things are at odds here. And we see them looking at this Last Supper with hindsight and the benefit of knowing what is happening. So Judas uh, is is sitting here. Jesus is sitting here. All the disciples are are clueless, sitting um, in their midst. And what happens next is shocking. Jesus, verse 4, rose from the supper and laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. I know that you're all aware that this is the work of a servant and the work of a lowly servant. It would be hard to overemphasize how menial and humiliating a task this is. This would be done by the the lowest level servant or slave in a household. If this is a Jewish household, it would usually be done by a Gentile servant because even if someone's your indentured servant, you don't want to make a a child of Israel do this sort of thing. In fact, this is such a low task that when John the Baptist is using exaggerated language to try and describe just how much greater Jesus is than him, his go-to thing is, I'm not even worthy to unfasten his sandal, right? Why Is that a prank that you would play on someone? No, he's saying, I'm not worthy to wash his feet. This is the, the lowest form of contact people would have with each other. I'm not even worthy to do that. Now, we need to stop a moment and just establish what is happening here, what Jesus is doing. Uh, it, it, he washes their feet. He says to them at the end, he'll, we'll read, he says, what I have done for you, do for one another. 
And there has been a, a number of fringe groups in, within Christianity who have said, therefore, this must be another ordinance, another sacrament, alongside baptism and the Lord's Supper to be practiced regularly, the literal washing of feet. But historically, the church has always understood this for what it is. It's a living parable. It's an object lesson, like David brought up, David, like Dave <laughs> brought up that uh, piece of wood so that the kids could look at it and it would stick in their minds better than if he was just talking. Jesus is giving them this picture and this experience to teach them. This is his ministry in a nutshell. From the beginning, including his teachings and his miracles and especially what he is about to do. And they need this. They're about to be tested more strongly, more difficult, more, more uh, uh, fear is going to be bubbling up in them than has ever been before, and they need this interactive lesson. The sight of the master on his knees dressed like a slave. The feeling of the water on their feet and the dust kind of falling away as their feet are washed the sound not only of the, the water in the basin, but also of the towel as their feet are rubbed dry. And the sound of Jesus' voice telling them, yes, this seems backwards, but it's the way it has to be if you'll be my followers. There is certainly some tension here between Jesus being the Son of Man who comes in the clouds in glory and being now a slave to them, a servant to them. But it's not in spite of his high station, of his divinity, that he does this. Rather, in verse 3, we find that it's because of it. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his... So, this is because of who he is, and what he has come to do, where he's come from and where he's going, that he actually begins to serve them in this way. We read that he took off his outer garment. This would be his tunic. We find out at the cross that it's a rather nice garment. It's woven uh, all in, of, of one uh, piece of fabric. And he sets it aside. And I think we don't want to miss here the part of the object lesson that is present in the taking off and the putting on. Back in Philippians 2, which I read just a moment ago, Verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That language there is very much the language of taking off a garment and putting it off and putting on something else. He takes off his glory that he is experiencing in the heavens and puts on the role of servant. And we see this perfectly illustrated in his taking off his outer garment, tying this towel around his waist, and assuming the role of one of the lowest people in any given household. And here we see Jesus' actions and his words perfectly working in concert. First of all, we remember Jesus taught the Gentiles lord it over those whom they rule, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. It's easy to imagine someone teaching this while exempting themselves. right? Whoever among you has to be the servant of everyone. I'm the exception that proves the rule. I'm the leader. That's not how Jesus operates. I will lead by example. 
And so he does this thing which is unthinkable for a rabbi to do. Utterly unthinkable. And we see here an important truth for those of us who follow Jesus. That if we follow him and we emulate him, nothing is beneath us. No task is beneath a follower of Jesus Christ. It's easy for us to start to think that that is the case, that I'll, you know what, let someone else do that. I'm a little more important. We have a kind of a celebrity Christian culture out there where even ministers of great renown will also often say, no, no, I don't, I don't go to hospitals and visit people. I've got people to do that. I just get the glory. I just go out and write the books and sign the books and do the, you know, the teaching to the crowds and, and, and absorb their adoration. Aaron and I met uh, a couple, couple weeks ago at uh, St. Matthew's Lutheran, and, and the wife used to come here when she was a little girl. She, she remembered uh, Penny and Larry and a few people, and, and she said, you know, I loved that church. It was wonderful, and that's where I kind of got the foundation of Christianity, and I got saved later in life, but that's where the seed was planted. And I said, well, what do you do now? And she told Aaron and I about how she goes to juvenile correction centers as a worker for Youth for Christ. She's been doing it for 20 years. And she said, you know, one of the hardest things is I also have a list of all the people I ministered to who went from there to prison. So I have to visit the prisons as well. She does this. She goes into these places where we wouldn't want to go. We wouldn't want to think about what's happening there. But Jesus has said, I was in prison and you did not visit me. Nothing's beneath us. Going into a prison, going into a hospital, even if maybe it makes us uncomfortable. I don't like the smell. I don't like the reminder that someday I'm going to get sick. Someday I'm even going to die. We need to be there as well. We need to be encouraging people. We, we read in the Scriptures about opening our homes to one another when we're in need. What a wonderful picture. But it goes beyond that because Jesus is giving us an extreme picture of becoming the lowest sort of servant. That if you're a follower of Jesus, you'd better be ready to be on your knees with the towel wrapped around your waist. I, I think of Vava when I think of this. Vava was from the south. She was a wonderful little old lady at uh, Burton Baptist Church where I was uh, ministering for several years before coming here. I did my internship and then my other internship there. And, and I had a lot of great experience. And, and one of those experiences was I was getting ready to preach, not on this text, but on this topic, on a, on a passage that was about how we must be ready to serve one another. And I was looking over my notes. Uh, the pastor would let me use his office. And someone came in and said, Viva needs you in the restroom. I said, that's a weird thing to say. I said, hey, that's what she told me to tell you. So I went down, I knocked on the door, I said, Viva? She said, come in a minute. I opened the door, and here is Viva on her knees with her tiny little hands in giant rubber gloves cleaning up someone's accident. And she said, she told me who, who had accidentally done this, and she said, I want you to go, first of all, make sure she's okay Make sure that she knows no one is going to know about this and that, that she's fine. And then I want you to stand by this door and make sure no one comes in. And I, she didn't tell me this, but I know the reason she asked for me was because I was in college in the pre-seminary program getting a religion degree. And she said, you need to know this is what it's all about. Being a servant. You're going to stand up and preach in a minute, but more important, you're going to serve someone and protect their dignity 
and show them the love of Jesus and how we are together a family. So Jesus is modeling this, and we have to model it too. Secondly, we see Jesus modeling perhaps the most difficult thing he taught, which is love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. That sounds so nice. So rarely do we do it. Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Judas is still in the room. Jesus washes Judas' feet, even though he will tell us that the spiritual significance doesn't apply to Judas. He will humble himself and put himself beneath his enemy and show him love. once heard a, a priest talking about an experience he'd had where he was on a construction crew and they were laying a large drain pipe for a new building. And as they were digging the trench, they came upon a really big power line right across where they needed to be. And, and so they called for an electrician. They said, I need, we need you to look at this. Tell us if it's live. What's going on with it? What should we do? He examined it for a few minutes. The electrician said, it's dead. Don't worry. It's fine. You can cut it. Put it aside. And, and, and the foreman said, are you sure it's dead? He said, yeah, it's fine. Just cut it. And he said, okay, would you cut it then? And the electrician thought for a minute and said, I'm not that sure. This is the sort of thing we want to avoid. Whether you're at the pulpit or whether you are a Christian in the workplace, in the home, out in the community. Oh, this is what we teach. This is what we affirm. Yes, yes, love your enemies. Gee, I'm not that sure. It's a nice idea, but I don't know that I can model it for you. Jesus modeled it for us. Thirdly, we see him foreshadowing what will happen. At the cross. In the first three Gospels, at this dinner, Jesus' blood is pictured in the wine in the cup of communion. Not so in John. We don't have communion here. We don't have the, the Last Supper culminating with the, the instituting of that sacrament. Rather, we see Jesus' blood pictured in this basin full of water which washes those who belong to him. We read in Hebrews 1.3 about Jesus being lifted up after he's humbled himself. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins. That's what Jesus came to do. And when he triumphantly reenters heaven, that's what he has accomplished. And Jesus is foreshadowing that here. Obviously, his disciples didn't quite get it yet. He even tells them, you don't know what I'm doing now, but afterward, you'll look back and you'll see. I can only imagine how awkward this whole thing was. No one talks in the narrative until Peter does. I have to imagine it was awkward silence, lots of sidelong looks between the disciples. Go ahead, wash my feet. And, and Jesus goes from man to man washing feet. What rabbi would do this? Jesus warns that, that the Pharisees and the scribes and those who were held up as being great religious figures, they all wanted the best seats at any given banquet. They'd go in and they'd go, hmm, where, what is the closest to the head of the table I can sit without anyone bumping me down? And that's where they would go. And he said, no, 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 no. Your life should be like this. Where's the lowest spot I can sit? And then I'll be lifted up. And that's what Jesus is modeling. He, he's, he's going to go down to, to the floor and wash feet, and God is going to sit him at the right hand of the majesty on high. God the Son at the right hand of God the Father. 
This is for us a beautiful picture of what Jesus will accomplish. But then he came to Simon Peter, verse 6, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Never sure if Peter is being humble or proud here. Right? There's a humility in him acknowledging, no, 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 I should be beneath you serving you, not vice versa. But there's no humility in him it's insubordinate. It's insubordinate and churlish. He says, he says, no, it won't ever happen. You will never wash my feet. How dare he? Maybe the right question isn't, is he being humble and proud? Maybe, maybe what he's being is holier than Jesus in his mind. I'll protect you and your reputation. I'm going to protect you from yourself. I'll give you some advice here. Don't put on a towel like a servant and wash your disciples' feet. I'm not going to let you do this. I'm not going to let you debase yourself. Even though he didn't understand, he could have handled this much better. Remember John the Baptist, when Jesus came to him, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus came to him for baptism. John said, No, no, no. I ought to be baptized by you. And Jesus said, To fulfill all righteousness, we're doing it this way. And John said, Okay. And baptized him. He didn't understand it, but he did it. He submitted himself to the will of God. Sometimes, as we're trying to model loving our enemies and being a servant, we're not going to understand exactly why. We're not going to understand what good could this possibly do. But we trust and we believe and we act anyway. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. This past week, we, as a family, sat down and we're, sometimes we like to eat dinner in front of the TV, a special little treat for the boy. And we were on Netflix and I said, oh, let's watch this old Seinfeld routine. Calvin's getting into stand-up comedians and stuff and becoming a stand-up comedian maybe. And we, we were watching it and, and there was this routine that I'm sure most of us have seen where, where Jerry Seinfeld says, what is the deal with dry cleaning? And he talks about how when you bring your clothes in to get dry cleaned, you don't know what's happening. That they take them back in this secret room, they do something, the clothes allegedly don't get wet, but they get clean and when they bring them back to you, they're fine. But he, he says, how is there no liquid, no chemicals, it's all dry? And then the, I think the, the climax, uh, the, the, the punchline is really, you ever get something on your clothes and you take your fingernail and go like that? That's dry cleaning. And if you go in the back room, there's just a bunch of people doing this. And that reminded me of years ago when I was preaching Monday Thursday at St. Paul's Episcopal for a community service. I, I referenced this routine with this very text. That, that when we go in and say, I don't care what's going on back there, this is an ideal arrangement, so sure, dry clean them. They're getting wet, but whatever. Here's my ticket, give me my garment back, here's $20, whatever the case. We want to have our cake and eat it too. It doesn't get wet, but it gets clean. Peter here has a similar mentality. He wants to have his cake and eat it too. He wants a relationship with Jesus, with all the benefits and all the glory for him that might come with it. But he doesn't want to let Jesus in on his dirt and his filth. He doesn't want Jesus to take on the role of servant in this relationship. That's uncomfortable. He doesn't want to get his feet wet. That night, Peter wanted dry cleaning, in a sense. But a dry, clean Lord is of no use to us, as Jesus points out here. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. 
You have no portion. You have no inheritance from me. Only if I wash you am I your Savior and your Lord. You know, we often emphasize, and growing up I kept hearing, and it's true, that if Jesus isn't your Lord, He isn't your Savior. I hear people try and bifurcate and separate those things. Well, I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was nine, but I didn't accept Him as my Lord until I was 89. Well, He wasn't your Savior in the in-between years. If He's not your Lord, He's not your Savior. That's true, but the opposite is also true. There are those who would like to say, yeah, Jesus is my Lord, He's my teacher, but I'm not going to confess and repent. I'm not going to get low on the ground before the cross and acknowledge that I am filthy spiritually and need to be washed in his blood i want to just keep it here's my ticket thank you very much eye to eye man to man we understand each other and we'll just keep things civil here you know there are there are many foot washings in the new testament and we see in them great openness and great sacrifice none of them is a case of dry cleaning You know, when when Peter withheld his feet from Jesus, he wasn't just withholding his feet. Rather, he was kind of withholding himself, trying to say, yeah, I'll call you Lord and teacher, but not Savior. Two days earlier, we see one of these foot washings. While Jesus was eating at the house of Simon the Pharisee, a notoriously sinful woman came in and began to wash Jesus' feet with what? Her tears, her tears, yes. She began to, in fact, she was crying so much that the word that is used in the gospel in the Greek generally just means a rainstorm. She's raining tears on him, and then she dries his feet with her hair. And the host, Simon, is horrified by this and thinks to himself, if only she knew what kind of woman this is, that she's a sinner, He would tell her to get out of here. And then Jesus rebukes him, knowing his thoughts. If this really were a a prophet, he'd know that that she, she's been all over. She's, She's a sinner. Jesus understands what's happening. Her repentance is being poured out in another object lesson for the disciples so that they can see what Jesus does for sinners who truly turn from their sins and ask for forgiveness. Last Sunday, we talked a bit about Mary, the the sister of Martha and Lazarus, how she had gone and and washed Jesus' feet and anointed them with incredibly expensive perfume. And Judas, pre-Satan Judas, but still Judas, was incensed by this misuse of incense. It was very expensive, and he said, good grief, we could sell that, and we could help many poor people. And what he really meant was we could sell that and we could put the money in our purse and then I'll take a cut myself because he was a thief as the one who kept the books. Not that everyone who keeps the books is a thief, Sean. But Judas was. He would have preferred a much more reasonable and dignified exchange, one that was a lot drier. And many people, our relationship with God is very dry. I put on my suit, I go to church, I sit down, I say the right stuff, I stand, I sit, that's it. I leave and here's, here's my claim check, thank you for my garments. And if he's not your savior, he's not your Lord. And listen, you can sit at the table with him formally and have a face to face. Judas also did this. And yet Jesus says, you're not all clean. He knew who would betray him. 
Likewise, when Jesus tied a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet, not only was he making a sacrifice in condescending to be with them and to even be beneath them in the social order, he was foreshadowing an infinitely greater sacrifice. His blood, again, pictured in the Gospel of John at the Last Supper, not as wine, but water. Both of them foreshadow what would happen. And, and Peter's first reaction is what many people, when they get a taste of, oh, I can be free. Oh, but I have to take all my stuff and give it to him. I have to submit myself to him. I have to repent. I have to turn from my sins. I have to become a new creation. And he pulls his feet back. It reminds me of a sort of controversy from a few years back, maybe 10, 12 years back, a song became rather popular called How He Loves Me. I don't know if you know it, but I love it. It's a beautiful worship song. And there's a line in it that says, Heaven meets earth like a sloppy, wet kiss. And I remember people losing their minds over that. How irreverent. How horrible. And there's alternate versions sometimes you'll hear that say, Heaven meets earth like an unforeseen kiss which strikes me as a little bit weird. But the slop, we don't want it to be sloppy and wet. Keep it, keep it dry. Keep it profesh. Okay, let's not, let's not let this get sloppy. That's what, that's what Judas thought. That's what Peter thought. That's what Simon the Pharisee thought. Let's not think that way. Let's not hold back our feet and in doing so hold back ourselves from being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Verses 8 through 11. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's a man of extremes, either not at all or everything. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Many times we feel like we need to be baptized again. We feel like we need to start over. We feel like we've dropped the ball and we need to actually be rewashed. All of us, Jesus says, no, if you've, if you've been born again, you're clean. Just come to me and I'll wash your feet. Yes, you've been walking in the dirt. We all live in the dirt in this sin-stained, curse-ridden world. Come to me and I'll wash your feet anew. That's all you need. If you've, if you've been washed, you're clean. If you've been saved, you're clean. And we can return to Him and He will wash the dust of this place off our feet as our servant and our Lord. And in this text, then we see the normal progression that we see in the New Testament, which is imperative, therefore, I'm sorry, indicative, therefore, imperative. Forget all that anyway. What it means is telling you what Jesus did for us. Therefore, here is what we ought to do. We want to switch that around a lot. I need to do something to get into God's good grace. No, no, no. If you do something to get it, it's not grace. Rather, we see what God has done for us. We receive it. Therefore, this is what we do. And this is also perfectly pictured in this living parable. What I've done for you, because I've done it for you, therefore, go and do for each other. But if we try to see Jesus' foot washing as this sort of sterile, generic, dry, clean act, it'd be useless to emulate it. We need to see the sacrifice that he undertook and the sacrifice that he was foreshadowing. And when we wash each other's feet, we mustn't make the same mistake as Peter and go for the dry cleaning. 
without tears, without incense, without the blood of Christ. To truly follow his example requires true openness and true servanthood. Read the remainder of the passage. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. Now, if this sums up Jesus' ministry, many people would want to boil his ministry down to be nice to each other. Isn't that really all that Jesus taught? All the rest of it is superstition and silliness, but just, just love each other and be kind and, and, and help each other out, and that's Christianity. No, it's not. There's something far more specific here being pictured. When we wash each other's feet, remember what that water represents. The blood of Jesus. When you serve someone when you put the towel around your waist and get on your knees to serve someone, it ought to be in a picture of the gospel. You bring the gospel into the equation. And you show them the love of Christ, not just love in general. We serve with the service of Christ. We serve because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And bring these things to bear. Galatians 6 brings us even further, I think, because remember, Jesus is uh, picturing for them the confession of sin and the washing away of the feet. Like in John, we read, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So he's washing away the sin from someone who's already been washed head to toe. And so if you go and do likewise, you're forgiving your brothers and sisters when they sin against you, even if you feel like they don't deserve it, especially if you feel like they don't deserve it. Or perhaps you're going to someone who's caught in sin, and it's not against you, but you're helping bring it to their attention and leading them into confession and to the foot of the cross where they will receive forgiveness. And we need to be careful when we do this, that we don't have a Peter attitude Brothers, Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one, another, one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. With a spirit of gentleness. Harry Ironsides, a revivalist preacher, used to say, when you wash your brother's feet, be careful of the temperature of the water. You might come too hot. You're living in sin! And push them away. You might come too cold and formal. Well, let's sit down and discuss this. Here's my claim ticket. Come in gentleness. Come with the same spirit that Jesus had when He meekly, gently took the, the dusty, dirty feet of His disciples and washed them clean. You see, we are going to live according to one basin or another. I don't remember who I heard teach this, but oh, it's brilliant. It's not, me. it's not mine. The day after this all happens, Pilate is going to be talking to Jesus and learning what Jesus is all about, hearing from his enemies and why they want Jesus put to death. And he's going to reach a point where he says, I don't know, I don't want to deal with this anymore, I give up. And he's going to order that a basin of water be brought to him, and he's going to wash his hands of the whole affair. 
And when we encounter Jesus, when we encounter the cross, it's going to go one way or the other. We're going to wash our hands of him and walk away, or he's going to wash our feet and cleanse us in the blood that he shed on the cross. And because he's done that for us, we too can let our actions and our words work together. We can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We can, we can even be the servant of all, the lowest kind of servant. Our pride will try and get in the way. The enemy will try to do what he's prompting our hearts to look out for number one and to make ourselves, lift ourselves up. But because of what Jesus has done for us, we too can lower ourselves, have that same attitude in us that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God was highly exalted in him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the picture that we see in John chapter 13 of our Lord and Savior, the highest, the King of kings, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, putting off his glory and taking on the role of a servant. We thank you that he does this because only in his washing us can we have any part with you. And Lord, we thank you that he's given us that as an example. And we pray that as we leave this place, having had our feet washed by the hands of the master, we would be prepared to, to go out and serve, to go out and love. Lord, that we would be prepared to take on the role of a servant and see nothing as being beneath us. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.